What is a healthy congregation? Are you a member of a healthy congregation? How do we define healthy congregation? And if we're in a congregation that is perhaps unhealthy, is there hope to for it to become healthy? You're listening to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates. Thanks to our friends at Concordia University, Wisconsin. They are great supporters of KFUO, particularly underwriters for Faith and Family. Find them on our website, kfuo.org. Look for Concordia University, Wisconsin. In studio with me today, it's my privilege to have in studio with me today, Ted Kober. He's Senior Ambassador of Ambassadors of Reconciliation. Welcome back to Faith and Family, Ted. Thanks, Andy. It's great to be here again. A pleasure to have you in studio I feel like um, that uh, having time, one-on-one time with you, that that I should be like paying by the hour or something to, to have the privilege of, of consultation with, with Ted Kober in studio. But you have a new book uh, coming out tomorrow from Concordia Publishing House, and it's exciting. And I had the privilege of, of getting to preview it. So congratulations. Exciting news to have a new book. Thank you. And it's, it's not just a book on uh, anything just to be writing a book, but what... What have you been doing for the... How long have you been working in reconciliation? How long is your work? I've been doing this work for 25 years. 25 years. Uh, You've, I'm sure, learned a lot in that time. Oh, yes, and I'm still learning. (laughs) And uh, the opportunity came up to write a book on healthy congregations. And uh, I I understand you thought, well, there are lots of books on healthy congregations, right? Well, that's right. Uh, Concordia Publishing House uh, approached me to see if I'd be interested in writing a book on healthy congregations. And my first question was, you know, there's a lot of books on that topic already. Do we really need another one? Uh, But they asked me to pray about it. And uh, I went back to my own library and went through a number of books on that. And I found that... the way that those authors were approaching the topic would be quite different than how I would approach it. So I agreed to write the book and actually have enjoyed it and uh, am pretty excited about it. Why spend time researching healthy congregations? I know you did quite a bit of research to uh, into healthy congregations to understand healthy congregations. Why invest that time in learning about and understanding healthy congregations? I wanted to take a different approach than uh, most of the authors that I've read on this topic. Uh, And most of the books already written on the topic approach it from two or three different different, um, viewpoints. So one approaches it from a psychological point of view uh, and applies uh, family systems theory or other psychological theories uh, to approach the congregation as an organization. And there's some helpful things in there. Uh, And then another approach is through an organizational or a business model approach. What makes a healthy organization? What kind of characteristics does it hold? Those kinds of things. That can be helpful too. But I wanted to approach it from a spiritual perspective. And uh, I was happy to do it just strictly from what the Bible says. But people today want to look at more than what the scriptures uh, look at. So I wanted to conduct uh, uh, research to, first of all, test what I had seen in my 25 years working in this uh, area of ministry and uh, see if the research would show the same things that that the scriptures teach and what I personally experienced. And so I did my own research and then I came across another research project, both of which really show that very firmly. So what is 
a healthy congregation. <laughs> you can define healthy congregation in any number of different ways, uh, but I define it in terms of its spiritual health. And uh, that is demonstrated by spiritual maturity. One of the things I say in my book is spiritual maturity or spiritual health of a church is tested in the midst of conflict. Because what conflict will reveal is how people respond. If they're going to respond from a very worldly way or if they're going to respond from uh, a very biblical way. And the second one uh, occurs in those congregations that I believe are spiritually healthy. So what does that... What does that look like? What did you see as you researched, as you visited and and learned more about, quote, healthy congregations? Well, first of all, let me tell you how I came to this conclusion. Uh, The very first conflicted church I worked with, uh, our team uh, was meeting with leaders of the church, and we met with uh, the elders of this particular church. It was a, a, a fairly large church with an average uh, worship attendance of 750 on a weekend. And we were meeting with the 13 elders. Whenever we meet with leaders of a church, we always look to the scriptures. And so we asked them to look up the gospel of John. Four of the elders could not find the gospel of John. Three of them were paging through the Old Testament and one had landed on First John. And it was evident from our talking to them that at least a third of the elders were unfamiliar with Scripture. In another church where I worked, I met with 11 elders. It was a congregation that at one time had been the largest church in its district and was held up as a model congregation. But at this particular point, they were in uh, a crisis conflict and having all kinds of destructive things happening with people leaving and offerings declining, that kind of thing. And I met with the 11 elders. Not one elder could find the book of Romans. And over the next 20 plus years, whenever we worked with churches that were struggling with destructive conflict, we found members and leaders that were just unfamiliar with the scriptures. And it became evident to us that as we were teaching them, Uh, They were not people of the word. As a result, how they responded to these destructive conflicts is from uh, their own personal background, the way they were raised, what they learned in school, uh, what they uh, were learning from society, from business, uh, and in more recent years from social media and the Internet. All of those things had much more impact on how they dealt with their conflict as opposed to the word of God. But when we worked proactively with congregations uh, where we were doing teaching and we found leaders that were very familiar with God's word and they had conflict they were dealing with, they responded very quickly to the word. They knew what to do when it came time for confession and forgiveness. And it was just a dramatically different approach. When you say that that the spiritual health or the spiritual maturity of a congregation is tested in conflict. Can you give us an example of what that might look like? When I did my research for this book, uh, I met with uh, 11 senior pastors of congregations that were deemed healthy by their ecclesiastical supervisors. And one of the questions I asked them uh, was to describe a significant conflict in their church 
every church deals with conflict at some time in its life. And what I was interested in is how the people responded to it. And what I found is in those churches that were deemed healthy by their ecclesiastical supervisors, those churches had similar conflicts to some of the unhealthy churches we had met with that were very significant. Maybe a leader in the church had a major moral failing, or maybe uh, the congregation was going through a major construction project and there were strong disagreements, or perhaps uh, a, a church uh, had uh, fights over different leaders, whether it was between the lay leadership and the clergy or just among lay leaders. They all had similar kinds of conflicts. But the dramatic difference between them was how they responded to them. So in the unhealthy churches, the things that we saw extensively were uh, personal attacks, uh, gossip and slander, uh, yelling at meetings, uh, some to the point that there was physical violence and the police had to be called in. Uh, some had meetings that went until late at night. One church met one time until 2 o'clock in the morning as they were fighting and accusing and attacking one another. Um, but compared to these healthy churches, when they had significant disagreements, they might have passionate debates at congregational meetings. But afterwards, the people that were on opposite sides, instead of attacking one another or avoiding one another, would come together. Uh, they would uh, meet together for coffee. They'd be seen laughing and talking. And if they had said something offensive in a meeting in the heat of the moment, they asked for forgiveness, and it was granted. And so that was a dramatic difference in the way these different kinds of churches uh, responded to the conflict. So my point is, is in conflict, you see what is happening spiritually in the heart of the people that respond to it. You mentioned that every church experiences conflict at some point in time. Do you think we have some misconceptions about that, that, um, that healthy churches don't have conflict? Absolutely. Uh, conflict is a part of our world since Genesis chapter 3. And uh, at different times, people have strong disagreements. Uh, and in many cases, conflict is necessary. Uh, it's necessary sometimes to bring about change. The gospel itself creates conflict in a world affected by sin. Uh, Jesus talked about that in that uh, he did not come to bring peace but division, for example. And that's because con uh, the gospel itself creates conflict in a world that is affected by sin. So conflict is a part of everyday life in, in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our communities, and yes, in the church. So it's not that we should be surprised that, that disagreements arise among people in the same congregation. Um, but what we want to look for is how do we then respond to it when we find ourselves in the midst of it? And I suppose that applies to, to not just congregations, but also to families as well. Most certainly it does. Uh, you'll have disagreements uh, between father and mother, between husband and wife, between parents and children, uh, among siblings, um, between parents uh, of children and then their parents who are grandparents to uh, the, the children. Uh, all of those situations, uh, people experience conflict in families. When researching the healthy congregations, what were some of the common things among the healthy congregations or what were the things that might have been indicators of a healthy congregation? 
Well, first of all, let me talk about was what was not common in my research. Okay. And uh, so that we can contrast that with what I found was common. Uh, when I went to the interview of these healthy churches, um, many of the things that were not in common among those 11 churches were the things that many of these other authors have written about. In other words, uh, some authors say you need to be uh, have your mission well-defined and be clearly articulated. You need to have a visionary leader, or you need to have inspirational worship, um, or you need to have uh, a particular organizational structure. And some of these churches had these things, but they were very different in the way that they approached them. And uh, where you might have one leader that was... Um, very charismatic in his personality and very dynamic. You might have another one in these healthy churches that was rather stoic and and from a worldly point of view, maybe not too exciting. Um, some of these pastors that I met with didn't mention their mission statement at all. I don't know if they had one. It wasn't clear in, in the hour or two hours that I spent with them. Uh, and so that wasn't what was most pressing. Uh, all of them had different kinds of worship services. Uh, some were very traditional, some were more contemporary, some were blended, but there was no commonality there that I found. Um, but what I did find in common is that they have a large percentage of people, leaders and members, who are regularly engaged in Bible study. And that's what I was looking for, uh, was does it make a difference if you have a number of people that are connecting to the Word through the church on a regular basis. Uh, an observation that I made in working with these highly conflicted churches that I considered unhealthy was this. I did a, 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 thumb of, a rule of thumb uh, percentage. I would ask what the average worship attendance was, and then I would ask how many different adults do you have in adult Bible study in the church? And for the unhealthy churches, it was always a low percentage, uh, usually less than 20%. Some, it was less than 10% or 5%. In other words, mm. uh, only 10% of their average worship attendance was involved in any kind of adult Bible study. In the healthy churches, all of them were well over the 20% mark. Some were well over 50% of their average worship attendance was in regular Bible study. Uh, the other thing I found in common was their leaders were in Bible study. So in the unhealthy churches, again, the statistics would often be less than 20%. But in the healthy churches I interviewed, uh, the, there were two of the 11 churches that were in the 30s, but most were much higher. The average among all 11 churches was 75% of their leaders were in regular Bible study. A couple of churches were 100%. And that's because in their governing documents, if you are not regularly in worship, uh, taking communion, and involved in Bible study, you could not serve as a lay leader in that church. Interesting. You mentioned that, uh, the, you know, some of the, the, the factors that, that others looked at when, when uh, defining healthy churches was whether or not the mission was, was clearly defined. And you mentioned that in some of your interviews, it wasn't necessarily clearly defined on paper. It wasn't like printed or handed to you or, or recited to you. That doesn't mean that they didn't have one or that it, it perhaps is more uh, understood than, than written. The, uh, what their purpose, what their mission is, is perhaps more understood. They may have a better understanding, but it wasn't necessarily something that was 
the first thing they told you when you came in. Not only that, but in 25 years of reconciliation experience, we have worked with highly conflicted churches that had a very well-articulated mission that was repeated throughout. Some had uh, signs in in the entryway of the church. Uh, Some repeated it every week in their bulletin or their newsletter announcements. Some had very well-defined missions, but they were highly conflicted, and their people were responding in very ungodly ways. In my book, I also give you an example of a school that had a mission statement, and as we were working with them, they were very conflicted, and it was also a church versus school situation. Uh, We asked what the mission statement was. They could say what the mission statement was, but when we asked, and uh, how are you fulfilling that, their answer to that had nothing to do with the mission. Uh, The mission, they said, was the Great Commission, Uh, Jesus calling us to go and teach and preach and make disciples of all nations. But when I asked how they were fulfilling that, they said, well, we have a private education. We have an alternative to the public school. Uh, We're very proud of the... uh, the education that our children receive, but not one in a group of 30 people ever identified it had anything to do with Jesus or with sharing the gospel. In other words, they had a mission statement uh, that was not a bad mission, but they knew nothing about what that mission statement meant. So just articulating a a vision and a mission by itself uh, does not make a place healthy. So there was a disconnect between what their mission was as a congregation or as a school and what they understood their actual uh, work to be about. Absolutely. Now, this does not mean that I don't think it's important. Uh, Having a well-articulated mission statement, uh, having a a well-prepared and done worship service, uh, having good leadership, I think all those things are important. The point I'm trying to make is What is most important is that your people are in God's Word, because you can have all the characteristics of a healthy organization, such as a healthy club or uh, uh, a service organization. You can have all those characteristics, but if the people aren't regularly in God's Word, it doesn't make a difference when it comes to spiritual health. You might have a healthy organization, but not a spiritually healthy organization. And we've worked with many churches that really uh, operated more as a service club or a social ministry function than they did as the body of Christ. And that's because they weren't people of the word. They were people who loved the church as an organization or a social club. Even some treat it like a country club, but they didn't understand what it meant to be the bride of Christ. Can you paint a picture of the... Well, let's talk about Bible literacy and the role that it plays you, you, in healthy congregations versus unhealthy congregations. You mentioned several times that in the healthy congregation, the, the at least half or maybe a majority of the congregation attended adult Bible study. What what did that look like when you visited with uh, the leaders or, or others in the congregation, how did they describe that? How did they speak about it when you asked about participation in adult Bible study? Well, let me uh, describe a particular case of a church we went to visit. Uh, it was a fairly large church. Uh, they had multiple pastors on staff, and one of the young pastors was involved in a 
uh, moral failing uh, that was sexually related. And he was well-loved by uh, the rest of the church staff, uh, well-loved by the people um, because his ministry had been very effective. Uh, he, he, he was a, 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 an excellent pastor, especially in, in the area that he had been assigned to, um, to lead. Uh, but when this failing came, there were some in the church that were concerned and felt that he needed to leave. And so this was causing conflict in the church. And so when we came, the first thing we always do when we do uh, any kind of consulting work, we always start with a full-day Bible study. What we tell people is this. If they're not willing to come together around God's Word to see what He has to say, uh, then we won't work with them because we have no hope to bring them if it isn't based on Christ and His Word and the ministry of reconciliation. And that's evidenced through the way we confess our sins to one another and forgive one another. So in this particular church, we started with the Bible study, and then I met with a different leadership group, the the, uh, uh, elders and the council, uh, the pastoral staff, uh, the individual that had been put on uh, paid leave while the church struggled to decide what had happened. And as I met with these leaders, and I had them describe the situation, and they were grieving over what had happened, um, but they couldn't agree on on what direction they should go. And basically, the the ultimate decision that had to be made is, can this pastor remain here, or does he have to go? That was the ultimate decision. So together, I asked them to look up several different Bible passages that guide us in this situation. Every one of the leaders, first of all, had brought a Bible to their meeting. That tells you something. And secondly, they found the passages quickly, They read them, and then I asked, how does this apply to you? And they were describing very well how it applied to the situation. In fact, they they were called immediately to, this is what the scriptures teach. Furthermore, some of them had responded in sinful ways in in their passions and in their words with one another. And uh, the, the Bible study we taught talked about confession and forgiveness. And I saw them immediately repent if they were involved in any kind of sinful activity and seek to be reconciled with others. Uh, The particular pastor that was involved with the sin uh, was terrified to meet with me. He didn't know what would happen to his future, but he was a man of the word too. And I met with him, let him tell me his story. He was very contrite uh, and he responded so well to the word. And of course, because of his contrition, I was there to, to assure him of God's promises that there was forgiveness because of Jesus Christ, uh, but that didn't mean that there wouldn't be earthly consequences, and we talked about all of that. In the end, all of the leaders, including the pastor, uh, realized that they needed to deal with this in a biblically faithful manner. And what ended up happening was the pastor came before the congregation in a specially called service where he confessed his sin before the congregation. He didn't list the details of the particular uh, sin that he was involved with, but indicated that it disqualified him for service as a pastor according to what the scriptures teach. And then uh, the uh, uh, pastor uh, that was there pronounced, uh, the other pastor pronounced God's forgiveness over this man uh, using words of scripture 
And while the people were, were grieving over the loss of this pastor, he had asked for a peaceful release of his call. They granted it. The conflict just ended right there. Now, there were a few people in the congregation that still had issues that they, they wanted to deal with and were still angry or upset, but the congregation responded by meeting with them privately and ministering to them. And this is such a different way than congregations where we go in and they don't know the word. You can share the word with them and they'll say, but, and they'll give all the worldly reasons why to respond, and they continue to fight and argue. It takes much more teaching, much more individual coaching for them to come to a godly response. So that's, that gives you a, a, a way that we can recognize immediately the spiritual maturity of a congregation by how familiar they are with God's Word and how they respond to it and then how they apply it, how long it takes for them to come to those conclusions. That's indicative, I believe, of a congregation of, of people who truly have been in the Word, who have been uh, shaped by the Word, who, who recognize the authority and the power of God's Word. When we're not in the Word frequently, it's it's harder to do that, and our old Adam kicks in, and we're more inclined to turn to anything but the Word uh, to try to solve our quote-unquote problems, to, to resolve our conflict. Uh, speaking of, uh, you, you talk about that, conflict resolution versus reconciliation. You talk about that in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, some congregations facing a, a, a conflict, a, a challenge, a battle, uh, might you know, call on the, the assistance of someone to, uh, to help them resolve conflict. How is that different from the work of reconciliation that, that you and ambassadors of reconciliation do? The way we define the differences between the two is conflict resolution works on resolving the material or substantive issues in a disagreement. Those can often be defined by money that's involved, position, uh, power, uh, uh, things that are often very physical or rights of an individual. Reconciliation involves restoring a relationship. And biblically speaking, the way that happens is through confession and forgiveness. Many of us prefer conflict resolution. In my own makeup, I like to be a problem solver. I can take hold of a a material issue. I can work out a solution. Uh, It's easier for me to think about. And that's my natural inclination. I would rather do conflict resolution than reconciliation. Why? I don't like to admit my faults. I don't want to confess that I was wrong, and especially that I was sinful. And you know what? I may not be too excited about forgiving somebody who's hurt me. I would, uh, by nature, rather hold grudges and do that kind of thing. And so in the church as well, we find it much easier to do conflict resolution than reconciliation. So one way we do that in our, our congregations is when we have a congregational meeting and we have a major dispute, and we solve it by a vote. Of 51%. As long as we have 51%, that's the American way, right? The democratic way. That will solve the problem. But if people don't come back and deal with the relationship issues, a congregation can vote to go a certain way, and many people will, will leave because the broken relationships have never been healed. It was interesting in, in uh, one of my interviews about the, with the healthy congregation, they had a very... Uh, 
contentious issue, and it had to do with a, a major building program. And people had strong feelings about what they should do and what they shouldn't do. And the leaders were very wise in saying, we cannot decide this issue on a 51% basis. That will not build consensus. That's not a way to be the body of Christ. And so they made a requirement that they would not move forward until they had at least two-thirds and hopefully much more in favor of this. And they spent extra time building consensus. And in the end, the construction project looked a little bit differently. But when it came about, not one family left the church. That's because they worked together to build consensus. And as they did have difficult meetings, when they did offend one another, they would go to one another to seek forgiveness. Uh, They understood because they were being nourished by God's word, this is what the people of God do. We seek uh, forgiveness from our God And through that, we are empowered then to be reconciled one to another. So there's a a difference between just simply resolving conflict and reconciliation where we are also concerned about our relationships. Mm -hmm. This wasn't about the color of the carpeting in the new building, was it? Um, It was about a lot of things. It was about the size, about the cost, all those kinds of things. Ultimately, though, about the great point, it, it came down to the the relationships, then those relationships were those that might have been broken were restored and the others were maintained, were were retained. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Ted Kober, Senior Ambassador of Ambassadors of Reconciliation. Concordia University, Wisconsin and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. The Knights of Columbus organization was instrumental in helping the pro-life movement during its early years. Currently, they're raising money and have donated over 800 ultrasound units to pro-life centers and mobile medical units. In San Antonio, the first woman who was to use the new machine firmly stated she would have an abortion. But during the sonogram, the baby seemed to wave at her. She looked up at the nurse and said, I'm going to keep my baby. The Knights have a goal of placing 1,000 ultrasound units with hope and prayer of saving at least 1 million lives. This technology has opened a window to the womb and shown expectant moms and dads the beauty and wonder of their unborn babies. Women who see the truth choose life. For more information, visit our website at lifeissues.org. And stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. Three things make a believer. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Prayer, meditation, and growth. Which is why every weekday morning from 7 to 8 a.m. we bring you Oratio, an hour of solace, contemplation, scripture, sacred music, and faith. Oratio, the dawn breaks with prayer every morning 
on Worldwide KFUO. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Erkinen inviting you and your golf buddies to participate in Christian Friends of New Americans Golf Tournament. This year, the golf benefit will be held Tuesday, October 10th at Norwood Hills Country Club. Funds raised help CFNA welcome refugees and new Americans in the name of Jesus Christ through Bible studies, tutoring, health screenings, ESL classes, and scholarships to LCMS schools. Please join us for some great golf while helping support this vital ministry. Information can be found at cfna-stl.org slash golf or call 314-517-8513. I'll say again, cfna-stl.org slash golf or call 314-517-8513. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org slash careers. KFUO embracing today's technologies to bring the good news message of Christ to the world. Listening to Worldwide KFUO on the go with your smartphone doesn't mean you have to walk around with earbuds all day. You can Bluetooth or sync up to listen in your car while driving anywhere. There are many easy ways to listen to WorldwideKFUO.org. On the air, online, and on demand, the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO. Welcome back to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates, talking with Ted Kober. He's Senior Ambassador of Ambassadors of Reconciliation and author of Built on the Rock, The Healthy Congregation, new book from Concordia Publishing House, releasing tomorrow, September 20th. And I believe you can even go ahead and order it on CPH. I saw it on the CPH website already today, so I believe you can go ahead and place your order there if I am correct. You are correct. You can go to their website or to our website as well. Uh uh, his, his AOR his AOR. AOR.org and uh, click on the, the logo on the bottom left hand corner and you can order the book directly from Ambassadors of Reconciliation as well. Very good. His AOR.org uh, check out the, and a number of other resources available as well at Ambassadors of Reconciliation. We've been talking about uh, healthy congregations and unhealthy congregations and some of the 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 common characteristics among healthy congregations. There's one, really, one chief characteristic among healthy congregations is what it sounds like from our conversation and from the book, is that they are people of the Word. They're in the Word regularly and uh, not just reading it, but, but so much more. How would you describe that? Not just reading the Word, not just even only studying it, but there's something more to it. In all of our work with uh, congregations over uh, uh, 25 years, and not just myself, but my colleagues that work together in the ministry, there are maybe three, possibly four congregations where they had a large number of people in the Word. But the difference is, is they weren't applying it to their own lives. And in Jesus' day, 
there were similar people who were knowledgeable about the word, but they didn't apply it to their own hearts. They said, this is good for those people over there. And in these congregations we've met with, they used the law from the word to attack one another, failing to see how they have also failed to abide by that law. And instead of coming together in confession and forgiveness, they use it to beat each other up. So the second part is not only being in the word, but demonstrating the difference it makes in your life by how you confess and forgive with one another in disagreements. Thinking about us today, uh, you you shared a, a story in the book about a pastor who came from, I believe it was from Australia, spent some time in the United States, it was from another denomination, if I remember correctly. He came and he uh, spent some time in the United States to learn more about larger congregations, I think it was, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly. What did he learn while he was here? You share this in the book, and I, what did he learn that he didn't expect to learn. <laughs> when I, I met this man, I asked why he came all the way to America uh, to study here for a few years. And he was working with a church for about three years. He was in the Bible Belt. And uh, I said, what surprised you most about uh, uh, working with the church in America? He says, I had never seen social Christianity And I says, what do you mean by social Christianity? And he explained to me that in Australia, less than 10% of the population is connected to any church at all. It's a very secular society. And so to belong to the church uh, actually hurts your reputation in society. And people would look down upon you if you were in church. But he says, when I came to America, he says, uh, and remember, he was in the Bible Belt, He said he learned that people belonged to church uh, not uh, so much because they were interested in studying God's Word, but because it was the social thing to do. Uh, They had great potlucks, or they served the best chicken dinners, or uh, it actually was helpful for business networking because business people in the community came, and that's how you met people that you would connect with. And his conclusion was that a big part of being the church in America is— uh, related to social uh, networking or business networking, and that it was um, if you didn't go to church, that that hurt you in business or social connections, and so that's why he called it social ministry. <laughs> social ministry, social Christianity, social Christianity. It, yeah. How does? How are American Christians different from other Christians? Yes, we, 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 it's a very social thing, but also in some sense, it's a social thing specifically for me, not for my neighbor. Does that make sense? Do do you see that? Um, One of the observations I've had about working internationally is uh, as Americans, we are very individualistic. And in many ways, what has made America great is that pioneering spirit, the person who's a maverick, a person that will test things and invent things and is creative in his thinking and will go out on his own in spite of challenges and, and will be like an explorer in a new land. That's part of what's made America great. 
But this whole individualistic idea has been taken to a height of idolatry, where the rights of the individual are more important than the rights or the good of the community. And where I see that contrasted is where I go to, especially third world countries, where community is more important than the rights of the individual. And how we see that in church is where people come to church for what they individually get out of it and not coming as as the corporate body of Christ to serve one another and those outside the community. And so people will come with the attitude, well, I'm only going to go to the church that meets my needs and does what I want, and I can come and go as I please, or I can church shop because I'm just looking for my needs. Uh, now, there's some of that that's not all bad, but when that becomes the exclusive motivation, then if there's something that's right for the good of the whole church, that isn't even considered. Uh, in third world countries where community is much more important, people lay down their individual rights for the sake of community, for the sake of common witness, for the sake of who we are together as the body of Christ. And you can see that difference as you work in different cultures. I've noticed that in in meeting people from different cultures, having the opportunity to talk with uh, many of our missionaries as well, learning about the cultures in which they're serving and how we live in a very individualistic culture. I think one example of that may be um, how we approach even just the uh, stewardship of money that's entrusted to us. <laughs> we don't use that that language. It's my hard-earned money is the language we use. Um, it's my hard-earned money and uh, I'm in control of where it goes and um, we give very little regard to how that impact, how we use or, or uh, how we steward that money that we quote unquote earn, how that impacts the rest of the people around me, particularly my congregation. Uh, I, I'm thinking only about me, maybe my family, but I don't give a whole lot. Well, I'll give this much to, uh, to my congregation. And I mean, X amount of dollars and not really giving much thought to how that, uh, how I'm making that decision, how that impacts, uh, not just me, but my congregation as well. That becomes evidence to us when we're working with a highly conflicted church and, uh, people have told us very specifically, look, I pay my offerings. I expect this service. Uh, translation, I pay my dues or I've made my payment, therefore I demand that I am served in this particular way. And uh, uh, it, it reflects an attitude of it's all about me and what I'm paying for, not what God is doing for me uh, through through Christ. It's a consumer mentality rather than a steward mentality. Yeah, a consumer mentality as opposed to a servant mentality. Mm-hmm that this has been entrusted to me, what shall I do with it? That or would be how can I help. serve you instead mm-hmm. of how can you now benefit me as a result of me paying this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned the, use the word idol or idolatry earlier and wanted to go back to that. How is idolatry a factor in uh, the health of a congregation? Ultimately, all sin is is rooted in idolatry. And the most basic idol of all is I want to be the God of my own life. In Genesis, when the serpent 
was tempting uh, Eve in the garden. He says, do you not want to be like God? And we take that a step further and say, do you not want to be God of your life, a God of my destiny? Um, Frank Sinatra sang about it when he says, uh, I did it my way. It's all about me. And ultimately, that's where the, the consumer mentality comes in, is I want to serve me and my interests. I want you to provide what I demand of you. And uh, so we talk as we work with churches about what are the idols that underlie uh, these behaviors, whether it's gossip or yelling or anger or uh, 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 physical confrontations. All of that is what is driving your heart. And what drives our heart ultimately is what or whom we worship. Uh, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And so anytime we fear someone or something more than God, anytime we love something more than our creator, love the creator more than the creator, anytime we place our trust in anything more than in God, we still have a God, only not the one true God. So we can put up all of our demands above what God is calling us to do, and that's idolatry. And that takes on many forms. Absolutely. <laughs> you see, we were created to worship, and since the fall, um, our worship is often deflected to ourselves or to things that we ourselves want. What can, if a congregation comes to the realization that they are unhealthy and in conflict, what can they do? Scripture calls us to repent. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So the cure for idolatry, the cure for a lack of being in God's word is confession and forgiveness. And whether it's a healthy church or an unhealthy church dealing with its conflicts, um, it's coming to the foot of the cross of Christ. And we do that in repentance. And repentance, of course, has two parts. The first is, is that we come in contrition to confess our sins before God and others. And the second part is that we believe in the good news uh, that for Jesus' sake, God forgives us our sins. And then as a result of that repentance, good works will follow. And what are those good works? It's, it's a changed way of doing things. It's a coming back together as the people of God uh, and uh, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit brought about through the means of grace, especially through our study of God's word, that we are empowered then to live the life that God calls us to. What can healthy congregations do to remain healthy congregations? How might this book be helpful to healthy congregations? Obviously, it's going to be helpful to someone who finds himself, uh, finds him or herself in an unhealthy congregation. But um, how might this be useful for those who are in healthy congregations? 
Uh, we worked with a congregation that had a significant conflict that resulted in, in just uh, a couple months' time, a loss of one-third of their worship community. And at one time, they had been very healthy spiritually. Their people were engaged in the Word. They were growing. They had built a new sanctuary. They had expanded staff. They had become a large congregation. But as they were growing and as they were realizing all of this expansion, they lost sight of what was most important. And they began to substitute being in the Word for what are some uh, ways to uh, grow an organization? What are some ways to expand our ministry? And with good intentions, they started looking more to psychology or more to business models for expanding and growing, and they forgot uh, about being rooted in God's Word. So when this major conflict came, they no longer had the spiritual health to deal with that particular conflict. Uh, and when we came to work with them, we found that uh, the people were very responsive to the Word, and they realized they had gotten away from what was most foundational. They quickly repented and, and uh, uh, began to change their ways so that they could become healthy again. So for a healthy church, it's a reminder to not take for granted uh, what, what the basis of our spiritual health is uh, and to expand it even further uh, because even in the healthiest congregations, you have people that are spiritually immature, that need to be brought along, that need to be encouraged. And even among people that are spiritually mature. They forget sometimes, and they offend, and they sin, and they need to remember what God has done and is doing them through Jesus Christ. So this book helps remind them of that and not take that for granted. What are some practical ways that uh, this book might be used in a congregation or in a small group or among leaders? Uh, I noticed that, you know, they're there are some helpful tools in it. It's not just a book to sit down and read, but it, it seems like something to um, to digest a little bit more. The way I wrote the book is at the end of every chapter, there's a series of reflection questions. And those are designed to be uh, used uh, not only for individual leaders, but to come together as leaders and discuss how does how do the principles in this chapter apply to our church? What is going well? What are the signs of health? What is not going well? What are some of the signs of unhealth? And uh, so the the book progresses by doing early analysis. And then in the latter part of the book are some very practical ways to get people more engaged in the Word, uh, to call them uh, to living out their faith through confession, forgiveness. And uh, so we talk about what um, uh, professional church workers can do, uh, like pastors and, and other spiritual leaders, what lay leaders can do. Uh, what the membership of a church can do. We talk about practical ways to get people more acquainted to the Word, whether it's in worship services or through its Bible study. And uh, what I've done is I've I've brought together some of the best ideas I've seen in working with churches around the world for 25 years. What helps bring them together in the Word? And so that's been included in the book as well. So there's some practical ideas, and obviously not every idea is going to work in every setting, but my hope was to, to give people uh, uh, a variety of things that they can choose from to increase biblical application, biblical study in their churches. So this is something that, that could be used in a, a small group study or a, a study or a, a 
gathering with uh, with leaders in a congregation or maybe in a small group that, that might be helpful to the whole congregation? Is that something that you think a whole congregation could read this together? Absolutely. And so I wrote it uh, with, with uh, leadership groups in mind. So a board of elders, a church council, a school board, a, a church staff, uh, a pastor and his elders together, uh, a small group Bible study leaders as they bring it to their group. This is designed for anybody who is interested in in being a part of making their church healthy. To the, the individual or the leader listening, oh, no, we, we don't have any conflict in our church. We haven't had any problems in 50 years in our church. The people who are creating problems left. Anything you might have uh, to share with them that this book or other resources might be helpful? If there is no conflict at all, um, and some churches have that kind of sense that there's no conflict, they're just kind of going on through life. My question is, are they still alive? Do they still have a pulse? Do they have any passions anymore? And there are some churches like that. And uh, John uh, addressed uh, a church like that in Revelation, uh, that they, they are lukewarm. They are neither hot nor cold. And if they have no passions going on, no disagreements... You forgot uh, the rest of the verse. What does he say he'll do? They're neither hot nor cold. Yes. He'll spit them out. He'll spit them out. <laughs> uh, so uh, it's a church that is um, without life, without spiritual life. Uh, and I'm not saying we should look for churches uh, and try to create sure. conflict. But I'm saying people that are passionate about what God calls us to do will inevitably have disagreements. And it's not um, the disagreements that indicate whether we're healthy or not. It's how we respond to them that's Mm -hmm. key. And this is a, a, a great resource to, more than just a resource, this is really something that, uh, that you can dig your teeth into and engage in, in meaningful conversation um, to, to learn as a congregation, as leaders together. It's, a, a, I think, a, a very valuable resource. Ted Kober, Senior Ambassador, Ambassadors of Reconciliation, author of Built on the Rock, The Healthy Congregation, available from Concordia Publishing House, cph.org, or you can check out the Ambassadors of Reconciliation website, hisaor.org. Ted, a pleasure to have you in studio today. Thanks so much for, for coming and sharing about this great book. Thanks, Eddie. It's been great being here. Coming up in just a little bit, Thy Strong Word, right here on The Messenger of Good News. listening to Faith and Family, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314-996-1518, or you can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Faith and Family on Worldwide KFUO.